Hello and a warm welcome to the Air Podcast, which is an exclusive insight into life at Cheadle Hume School. I'm Thomas and in this special episode we take a moment to position our puppies and remember those who have fallen and those who continue to dedicate their lives to the armed forces and contribute to serving their country and in particular what remembrance means to everyone here at CHS. In the before times you would have usually found the whole school gathering together outside the front steps and green door of the main building for the annual service of remembrance. Everyone from those aged three in preschool right across the senior school, up to the students in sixth form, as well as staff, old Waconians and invited guests would assemble for a commemorative ceremony to hear readings, music, lay wreaths and observe a two-minute silence. After that, a smaller, more intimate ceremony is usually held at the school's memorial sundial. Each Armistice Day, we hear about the stories of past pupils who served and experienced the impact of war. The infant and juniors are taught about the importance of remembering them by making puppies and pupils are encouraged to research the tales of their ancestors. Last year, a striking display of remembrance postcards was created to honour our relatives and others at the heart of conflict today. And because this year marks 75 years since VE Day and VJ Day, we wanted to extend our process of honouring the men and women who have given service by dedicating a special episode of our regular podcast. In the first part of this episode, you can join us as we bring our usual service of remembrance to you. You will hear a range of voices from across the school community recalling the particular poignant story of the Spanish flu alongside a selection of readings, a two-minute silence and the last post. Old Waconian from the front line, Lieutenant Jamie Grace, class of 2012, is one of these voices, coming directly from his base in Estonia. Then stay tuned for part two to find out more about the history of CHS's Sundial Memorial and hit the high seas with Old Waconian doctor in training and naval officer Hal Chewhurst, class of 2016. So without further ado, here's part one in its entirety. The First World War originated in Europe in 1914 and over the next four years became one of the most brutal and deadly conflicts in history, culminating in approximately 40 million deaths, both combatants and civilians. Immediately following the trauma of the war, the Spanish flu overwhelmed nations across the globe. Both soldiers and civilians, already weakened by years of war, starvation, disease and displacement, suffered greatly. The number of deaths far outnumbering those lost as a direct result of the war as many as 100 million people may have died over a mere two-year period. The origins of the virus have never been conclusively established, but we do know that it not originated in Spain. News coverage of the virus was scarce in the early stages, as government worked to keep news of the flu out of the papers, in order to keep morale high after years of conflict. Due to lack of censorship, however, the Spanish press reported freely, and so became associated with the virus, hence the Spanish flu. Whilst we can't be certain of its origins, it seems clear that it was incubated behind the front lines. 
in the final months of the war and then spread around the UK and around Europe and the rest of the globe by soldiers going home when the war ended. The early deaths were largely among the soldiers themselves, but the nurses and doctors treating them were soon falling victim to the pandemic, followed rapidly by a spread into the wider population. One ordinary soldier's story illustrates the tragedy of this terrible global pandemic. Sidney Richardson, my great-great-uncle, served in France and Italy before being wounded in the final weeks of the war. He was sent back to England to recuperate in hospital, and it was probably here that he contracted the Spanish flu. He was visited in hospital by his wife, who seems to have then tragically carried the virus back into the family home. Sidney died on November the 14th, 1918, just three days after the armistice. His daughter Elsie died the next day, aged only 18 months, and his three-year-old son Fred died a week later. Sidney's name can be found on the war memorial in his home village, and this is true of many of the service personnel who died as a result of the virus. The names of the nurses, doctors and family members who also died do not appear on any memorials or honour rolls, but we should remember them as we remember the other victims of war and its aftermath. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row by row, that make our place in the sky. The lark still bravely, the singing fly, scarce heard amid guns below. We are the dead, short days ago. We lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up the call with the foe, to you from falling hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high, if ye bring faith with those who die. We shall not see through, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Efforts to contain the Spanish flu in Manchester were led by the city's medical officer, James Niven, a pioneer in preventative health measurements intended to slow the spread of infections. Schools and businesses closed. He encouraged hand washing and isolation of those affected. Despite their relative unpopularity, he encouraged the wearing of masks. His measures helped to keep the mortality rate low. Only 322 Spanish flu-related deaths were recorded during the spring of summer and of 1918. However, the signing of the armistice making the end of World War I in November 1918 drew many people to Albert Square to celebrate. 383 deaths from the flu were recorded in the last week of the same November alone as a result. The second wave of the Spanish flu that followed soon after was far more violent and tragic. Men and women who had contributed years to the war effort and survived were claimed by a disease that did not discriminate. James Niven held the post of City Medical Officer for Manchester through the pandemic and retired a few years later in 1922. When you are standing at your hero's grave or near some homeless village where he died, remember, through your heart's rekindling pride, the German soldiers who were loyal and brave. Men fought like brutes and hideous things were done and you have nourished hatred, harsh and blind. But in that Golgotha, perhaps you'll find the mothers of the men who killed your son. The spring and summer of 2020 saw many of us clapping for our carers and the NHS. And at a time never more prudent, we remember as part of our service today 
a young nurse and Old Waconian, Frances Smith. Frances is the only female Old Waconian who died in service during World War I and is remembered on the memorial board in reception. She was a foundation student who joined the school in November 1894, shortly after her father's death. She remained at the school for four years and her leaving certificate describes her as frank, good-natured and obliging and physically capable of large amounts of work. These qualities would serve her well as in 1911 she was working as a sick nurse in the private house in Manchester. When the Great War broke out in 1914, Frances joined the Queen Alexander's Imperial Nursing Service. She was posted to Aylesbury to the military hospital, nursing soldiers invalided home from France. In 1918 she contracted influenza and lost her life on July the 1st. She is buried in Gorton Cemetery in Manchester with other members of her family. A Sonnet by John Buxton I saw men's homes burst into sudden flower Of crimson petals round each golden shell I listened to the whining bombs that fell And felt the hard earth tremble of their power I saw bewildered eyes that hour by hour Had peered through rifle sights I heard men tell how many rounds they had fired I learned the smell of cattle burning in the byres is sour. So much war taught me, and when I return, because I did not cower nor shirk the fight, but took a little part in this mad play. Because I too have helped to kill, wreak, burn. You did your duty, helped defend the right. You too were brave, some poor blind fool will say. On the 11th of September 1918, British Prime Minister David Lloyd George arrived in Manchester to receive the freedom of the city. Although raised in Wales, he was born in Chorlton on Medlock in Manchester and the city was proud of its famous son. He received a hero's welcome from the soldiers on leave and the munitions girls who lined Piccadilly and Deansgate in the rain to see him. He made a great speech about the war at his freedom of the city ceremony and a second smaller speech praising the service members of the area. When the time arrived to give a third speech, the Prime Minister was too old to continue. A doctor soon diagnosed flu, but the media reported that it was a mild chill caused by the rain. His aides did not want to alarm the public nor provide a morale boost to the opposition. His condition worsened and eventually an announcement was made to the public However, few knew just how serious his condition was. He travelled back to London on the 21st of September wearing a ventilator and it took many weeks for him to recover fully. Despite being a man of great energy, the flu almost broke the Prime Minister and his brush with, with death was almost fatal in the last few months of the Great War. Can we start over? Can we start over? Can we be strangers again? Let me introduce myself. We can laugh and talk and relearn what we already know and come up with some new inside jokes and create new memories and give each other a second chance. There will be peace when attitudes change when self-interest is seen as part of common interest, when old rings, old scores and old mistakes are deleted from the account, when the aim becomes cooperative and mutual benefit or group gain, when justice and equality before the law become the basis of governments, when basic freedom exists, 
when leaders, political, religious, educational, and the police and media wholeheartedly embrace the concepts of justice, equality, freedom, tolerance, and reconciliation as a basis for a new one. When parents teach their children new ways to think about people, there will be peace when enemies become fellow human beings. They shall not grow old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them.
You know, it's always so striking when in such a busy school, we're still able to find a moment of peace like our remembrance service, but always so important. Before you move on to part two of this episode, a special thank you to all our speakers. You heard a few words from CHS Senior Deputy Head, Mr Richardson, as well as an extract from The Falling, read by CHS Head, Mr Smith. Year 8 pupils Alex Vivash and Emmy Roberts read about James Niven, and Year 11's Josh Chalk and Charlotte Freeman recounted the story of Old Waconian Francis E. Smith. Thanks also to CHS Infant and Junior School Head, Mr Waitman, for his reading of Reconciliation by Siegfried Sassoon. CHS Infant and Junior School Deputy Head, Mrs Barai, who read Can We Start Over, and CHS Deputy Head of Academic Studies, Ms. Jackson, for sharing Sonnet by John Buxton. You also heard an excerpt from Pandemic 1918 by Catherine Arnold, read by head boy James Whelan. There Will Be Peace was read by head girl Beth Harrison, and there was music performed by sixth form musician Alice Brown. Among the readings, you also heard In the Flanders Fields by John McRae, read by Lieutenant and Old Waconian Jamie Grace, class of 2012, from his base in Estonia, where he has been deployed on operations under NATO's enhanced forward presence against the Russian threat. After graduating from CHS, Jamie started his British Army officer training at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, on a commissionary course which lasted 44 weeks and is widely considered to be the best officer training academy in the world. He finished top of his platoon and commissioned in front of Prince Harry, the sovereign's representative for the parade. Jamie commissioned into the Queen's Royal Hussars at the rank of 2nd Lieutenant, a cavalry regiment that British wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill also belonged to, and completed his Challenger 2 main battle tank training at Bovington, before being immediately posted to Germany to lead a troop of 15 soldiers. Since being at regiment, Jamie has trained new British tank commanders, raced in the Army Downhill Skiing Championship, as well as deploying to Canada for three months to take part in the British Army's latest exercise, Priory Storm. He has aspirations to join the Special Forces in the new year. Following on from our usual remembrance service, we now take a short walk down Claremont Road towards the Sixth Form Centre and gather around the school's memorial sundial, which sits in the shade of Holden Hall. Here's CHS's Alumni Relations Manager, Charlotte Aspin, to tell us more and reveal the particular significance of this historical feature. As you walk through our beautiful school site, the sundial in the grounds may just seem like another historic feature. But have you ever wondered about its significance? Designed by Old Waconian G.W. Hayward, the sundial was erected in September 1920 by the Old Waconians Association, with the aim to never forget those who had fallen in the First World War. Chairman of the Association, James Buckley, spoke the following words at the unveiling ceremony. From 1888 to 1913, There were boys running about the playrooms and playing fields of these schools, all unconscious of the terrible task which destiny had in store for them. They went, some 300 to 400 old boys of these schools, 59 of whom were never to return. 
the others are back amongst us again. We can greet them and clasp them by the hand. They are their own monument, but the 59 we shall see no more on earth. We think of them as having passed to a fuller life. In addition to the 59 old boys, there is one old girl who died in performing her duty as a nurse, and we should all pay a tribute to the women of England who worked so bravely during the war, for where the women of this country are brave, the men are bound to be. We have thought it right that in these grounds, in the shade of this building which at one time has been a home to us all and to those 59 who are dead, we should erect a memorial which conveys not only our sorrow and affection for those who died, but will also register the flight of time. So next time you walk past the sundial, please think about those from our school family who made the ultimate sacrifice and take a moment to read the inscription. We live in deeds, not years. In thoughts, not breaths. In feelings, not in figures on a dial. For the final part of our tribute, say hello to old Laconian Hal Dewhurst, class of 2016, who tells us about a different side of life in the services and how alongside his current training to become a doctor, his passion for new challenges and adventure has led him towards what seems to be becoming a bit of a Dewhurst family tradition of experiencing life in the Navy as an officer for Royal Naval Reserve and following in the footsteps of his grandfather, Alan. Hi, my name is Hal Dewhurst and I left CHS in 2016. After leaving school, I started university in Cardiff, where I am now in my final year as a medical student, graduating as a doctor in the next couple of months. When I first joined university, I was really keen to get involved in as many societies as possible, really. Back at school, I was always that, that kid who was in every club, uh, every lunchtime and after school, kind of spent my time busying myself and doing lots of different things. So when I joined university, I joined a, a lot of different societies. And then I found something uh, called the University Royal Naval Unit. Uh, through this and talking to the people who'd been a part of it, it seemed that you could have a wealth of experiences and opportunities and you get paid to do all of these things. So I joined and, and haven't looked back since at all. Having joined with them, it's essentially runs a bit like a normal university society. You know, you do one evening a week and then you do a few weekends throughout the year as well. I've traveled to Canada, America, Gibraltar, the Mediterranean, the Baltic, Estonia, Sweden. It's been absolutely wonderful. I've been in three different helicopters, uh, flown my own plane, done beach assaults with the Marines, experienced a wealth of things with them and got uh, qualifications in leadership and management and training. It's been absolutely fantastic. So since having joined that, I then um, kind of upgraded, so to speak, to the Royal Naval Reserve, where I now am um, uh, currently a, an officer in, in the reserves. And the way this works is that you commit 24 
four days per year um, to doing training and doing all these exciting things and traveling and, and going on board warships. And it really gives you an opportunity to do a bit more with your life. If you're looking to challenge yourself, to push yourself, you can do all of these wonderful things with them. Sports and adventure training activities. I've done paragliding. You can go parachuting in Cyprus. And the things you can get out of it are just absolutely fantastic. So this summer, I completed the Accelerated Officer Programme for the Reserves, um, and I absolutely loved it. Usually, in order to get trained up in the Reserves, you do around two years of the odd weekend here and there, maybe then a week-long period to complete all of your training and get yourself um, up to that, that level of kind of competency. Um, the Accelerated Officer Programme is an intense eight-week course um, which is done over summer. Ideal for university students because with your long summers you can blast it all out in one go and skip that usual conventional route which takes quite a long time. So the first four weeks is all your nitty-gritty uh, basic military training, getting down in the mud, doing all of those kind of bits, weapons handling, learning how to drive boats and the seamanship kind of bits. And then my last four weeks I spent in the Mediterranean on HMS Trent, which is uh, one of the warships we have down there, doing um, terrorism and, and migrant patrols in the Mediterranean, getting an absolutely fantastic tan whilst everyone else was in lockdown. And I passed out in September and I'm now uh, qualified as an officer in the reserves and it was absolutely fantastic. I loved every moment of it, met some fantastic people and made friends, which I'll be friends for for the rest of my life, genuinely. So what are my next steps then? Well, I'm currently a final year medical student. So my current objective is to finish my studies and qualify as a doctor in the new year. At the minute, I'm working in a GP surgery in Mumbles, Swansea, which is certainly a very interesting experience seeing how uh, healthcare has had to adapt to COVID and, and the pandemic at the moment. I'm very much looking forward to my elective just after Christmas. Um, which will be a nice celebration after my final exams. Uh, my elective, which is a, a, a placement block, you get two months to plan your own placement wherever in the world that you want to go. I'm going down to South Africa to work in the trauma department of one of the Johannesburg hospitals, which will certainly be very interesting and a very exciting experience. In terms of the Navy, I'm currently continuing with my training, doing a lot of my kind of professional courses, getting leadership and uh, management qualifications out of it um, before uh, graduating as a doctor later this year. Um, looking forward to the future, I'm thinking that I'm more surgically inclined and that's the kind of specialties that I'm wanting to go into, although I'm still open to a, to a lot of options. Seems every specialty that I do, I'm kind of like, oh, I really want to do this. But surgery seems to be uh, one that's certainly kind of stuck with me throughout my training. So I've had a bit of a family history with the Naval Service. My grandfather, uh, Alan, served in World War II in the Atlantic on a lock-class frigate protecting the Atlantic convoys. And he served for a number of years then uh, during and after the war. Uh, my dad, Mr Dewhurst, as, as many of the the students will know him, um, who was the director of music at, at CHS for a number of years, um, used to run the, the cadet forces at his previous school in Birkenhead. And he absolutely loved going down to Dartmouth, the Britannia Royal Naval College, doing all of these 
exciting things with boats um, down there when he was a bit younger. And he always used to tell me these stories and I was, to be honest, I was never particularly bothered by it. It was only when I got a bit older and started joining university and was looking for what opportunities that I could get that I kind of started considering these things and, and all these wonderful things that people were telling me about the Navy and the university units and the reserves. So I think this family history has definitely guided me down that route into the Navy and it's very nice to continue that tradition on with the family. That brings us to the end of this episode and what we hope was a fitting tribute as part of marking our school's remembrance. We really wanted to mark the moments and hope you'll agree that this podcast is another way of bringing the CHS community closer and closer together, all whilst revealing in a little more detail about how the impact of war remains an important part of school community to this day. As well as all the servicemen and women who have dedicated themselves to their country and helping others, this episode also appreciates a few additional heroes, as remembered by members of staff who are also CHS parents. Four airmen from the RAF crew on board the Hampton bomber in World War II, remembered by Year 7 people Harry and CHS junior school teacher Mr Mason, who walked onto Kinder Scout to place a cross and puppy at World War II RAF plane crash site. And also James McNair, great uncle to CHS teaching assistant Mrs Barber, James served throughout World War II in the Merchant Navy. He served on Atlantic convoys and then in the Far East. His ship was bombed in India a number of times. Even though he couldn't swim, he always used to joke that he sank like a brick. He survived to finally make it home in 1947 to marry his fiancée Mary, three years later than they had originally planned. Well, that is a lovely love story to end us off. As always, a huge thank you to you for taking the time to tune in. If you haven't already done so, please do leave us a review or rating on your chosen streaming platform. Click on the subscribe button to stay up to date with whatever episode comes next. Or if you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions or would like to be involved or share your story, we'd love to hear from you. Simply drop us an email on er at chgool.co.uk. Be sure to tune in to our next episode when you can hear all about CHS's recent giving day. Meet the callers who managed to raise more than £30,000 for the school's bursary fund and hear how that money will help the next generation of students benefit from a CHS education. But until next time, I've been your host Thomas and I'm looking forward to sharing more CHS stories with you again for what will surely be another lively and exciting, thought-provoking and entertaining episode of the Ed Podcast. Mm-hmm.